Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to another episode of May Contain Traces of Soy, the podcast all about surviving and thriving on a plant-based, zero-waste lifestyle. I'm your host, Rochelle, and if you're new around here, just click that subscribe button or that follow button. If you are an Apple podcast today, just go ahead and leave us a little rating or review. It really helps to push the podcast out there so that more people see it and hopefully spread that non-judgmental vegan message. Um, if you are new around here, you won't know this, but we do do shout outs on this show. So that's something where you, the listener, can get in touch with us and you can ask questions, suggest topics that you would like covered on the podcast, or just let us know what you're thinking of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you and we will give you a shout out on the next show if you do that. So today on the podcast, I am joined by Zachary Bird. Zachary is the former food editor of Plant Based News. He's been a recipe developer for Unreal Co. He's had articles in The Guardian, SBS Food and Veg News. And this Melbourneite has exploded on TikTok over the past couple of years with a following of over 40,000. Zachary is the author of Vegan Junk Food, which came out in September 2020. And his latest cookbook, The Vegan Butcher, which has just won Peter's 2021 Cookbook of the Year, and has also, it will help you to create pure plant-based magic in your kitchen. It is out now and available in a Dimmix near you. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Woohoo! Oh, what a great note to start on. Cookbook of the Year. It is lovely to be chatting with you, Rochelle. It's so fantastic to have you on, massive fan of your stuff and super excited to bring like a few recipes out to, you know, the people on the podcast today and tell them about what they can do to get some really good plant-based alternatives. So thank you for being here. Can't wait to share a rad feast with the listeners today. (laughs) Thanks, Zach. With The Vegan Butcher, you've obviously been working towards this one for a long time. And you've been vegetarian since you were just 12 years old. So what does releasing the vegan butcher mean to that little 12-year-old kid? Oh, that is such a great question because little 12-year-old Zach went vegetarian when he, I watched a Peter video called uh, Meet Your Meat. uh, And it it only went for two minutes. And that two minutes changed like the trajectory of my life. And I like, at at the time I sprinted into my freezer and I took out a packet of mints, like literally like a movie moment was like, I see you for what you are, like never again. And I had this um, journey throughout my teenage years of kind of discovering my vegetarianism. I was like a little activist in high school, but obviously I hadn't turned vegan yet uh, because I didn't really know anyone else that was a vegetarian. uh, And so I was kind of discovering it as a part of my personality. So to fast forward about a decade and a half later where I've, Uh, years ago I made the decision to go all in on a vegan lifestyle and years later I wanted a completely vegan career and it feels insane that the 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 organization Peter who created the video that sent me on this journey now 15 years later have awarded the vegan butcher vegan cookbook of the year just feels like a real like full circle moment for my my personal journey in animal rights and activism 
Yeah, absolutely. That is, isn't it? It's right coming all the way back around to the start. Like what a moment in your career. And hopefully, you know, there'll be many more moments like that for you as time goes on. <laughs> we <before>. pray. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I would love to hear a little bit about, and I know that you grew up in Cairns and you talk in the cookbook about a very special someone who really inspired the cookbook. So could you tell us oh. about Chickadee? I would love to tell you about chickadee. Uh, yeah, I give the credit to Peter, but really chickadee was this chicken that I got around the start of my vegetarian journey. Would you believe that spending time with the chicken and learning about its wonderful personality and sentience pushed me over the line to not want to eat chickens. And this chicken was, I was a friendless little child and this chicken was my best friend when it was, uh, when they, she was growing up, she would uh, sit in my backpack when she was really young and I would ride her to school and she would, I wouldn't ride the chicken to school. It wasn't that big. <laughs> I would ride with the chicken to school and I, I, I grew up with this chicken and I, I love chickens. And uh, I think that this particular creature, chickadee, really helped me go over the line and go, wow, if this one chicken can be such a beautiful little soul, imagine the billions that are currently being slaughtered and cool, can I apply this thinking to cows and maybe animals that I've not personally had the privilege of spending time with might have the right to life and might be wonderful creatures. And I think it just opened up this idea that the chicken on the packet of cage-free eggs smiling back at me does not look like the chickens that I'm eating in real life. And I don't, I don't want to screw with this fake reality anymore. So I thank Chickadee for, you know, giving me that lens. And that's why when I did my acknowledgement and my parents are absolutely pissed off that my pet chicken got mentioned in the acknowledgements prior to them. But I did want to say thank you Chickadee for, for, putting me on this journey and it feels really great to have a, a book that has a chapter dedicated to uh, replacing the products and the and the ways that the reasons that we kill chickens for it really feels like I've done a little something in return for for chickadee yeah well I mean that's beautiful and talking on that as well your one of your first really big recipes was the CFC you know kind of fake chicken that you you did and that one really blew up so tell me a little bit about the fake chicken recipes you've got in the book to sort of, you know, replicate anything someone could want when it comes to fried chicken. Well, fried chicken is such a, it's such a versatile recipe when you think about it. And there's so many different um, versions that we see on shelves and most of them don't look anything like a chicken, which makes it really easy to replicate. And I know I grew up on KFC Friday night. So that's why my first viral recipe was a chicken drumstick. And so it had a cauliflower bone and jackfruit flesh and then, you know, the preparations just like KFC. And that really showed me that people are looking for an alternative. So in the book, I have gone all out with things that really disgust even myself. Uh, we have four different poultry inspired roasts. So there's a Peking duck made out of Yuba, which is gluten-free. There is um uh, a bird roast. So if you don't want your uh, poultry to look like chicken, turkey or duck, you can make it look like a Zachary bird. So there's a whole roast vegan author <laughs> recipe in the book. There is, of course, like a roast turkey, which is what went viral last year with one of my recipes. And my piece de resistance for the gluten-free gans is the faux duck in. It's completely gluten-free and it's got a gluten-free chicken, duck and turkey layer. Um, 
So I've really gone and replicated. I started off with the drumstick and now I've showed you, you can replicate every part of the chicken. And I'll tell you what, it's a lot faster than raising a chicken from birth. Just get in your kitchen and you can make one yourself. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think it's amazing to hear that you're doing some gluten-free recipes in there because the bane of so many, um, you know, celiac vegans is that difficulty in finding a gluten-free version for your fake meat. So psyched to hear that that's in there. I know I've got at least one gluten-free vegan friend who's going to be over the moon. <laughs> oh, 100%. And, you know, I will say tan is such a wonderful ingredient and it should be if you can eat it. But I think what I wanted to, to achieve with this book is because there's so much space in this book, in other cookbooks, you can only really have the time to say, oh, Satan makes great chicken. But in this book, I can go, yeah, it does. But what if you had jackfruit? If you've got cauliflower or mushrooms, um, so often we leave the gluten-free vegans behind because we just pat ourselves on the back for making a vegan version, which is super impressive. But the book does go to say, well, okay, that's one way. Here's another 11. So if you've got a gluten-free friend, the only thing stopping you is a lack of research. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's fantastic. I'd love to hear a little bit about the vegan steak because that looks unreal and I'm really psyched to try that one out. So that's a bit of a wash the flour method, isn't it? Correct. So a lot of the seitan that we would know now comes from vital wheat gluten, which is uh, the protein been formed into a powder, like a flour that you can make really quick fake meats. But the traditional way of making seitan looks like you make like a, a pizza dough, like a big ball, and then under running water, you wash away everything but the protein. And then you can manipulate how that protein tastes or how it connects to the other gluten protein to make different textures. So the steak is my favorite way to start because it's so cheap. You work off the entire um, caloric intake if that's what you're into because you have to hand wash a, a bag of flour before you get your steak and the flavors in it are incredible. So I think it really, it's a great way to show people who think that veganism can be expensive or low in protein or lacking in flavor. This one recipe does a great job of telling them to shut the hell up and eat some of this steak. <laughs> that is a myth busting recipe right there I love it well what's wonderful not to continue plugging myself but when you do the um when you do the washed flour method what's washed away is all the starches and so we call that spawn of satan and if you let it settle you get this wonderful really thick sludge which makes wonderful meat replacements as well so not only do you get the satan the wastage is yet another ingredient. So when I'm making that washed flour steak, I used the leftovers to make vegan prosciutto in two minutes using my microwave. So, I mean, you can't do that with real animals. Like no. veganism starting to climb over the animal in agriculture industry and starting to do things that they can't even do. That is unreal. And I love that too, you know, because um, I'm very interested in sustainability as a lot of people are. So finding any way to, you know, reduce my waste is uh, another big motivating factor for me. I'm so excited to try that recipe. Have you got a favorite recipe out of the book? That's such a silly question to ask someone like me. How can I, how can I pick between my children? They're sitting next to me and they can all hear me. Um, Look, I'll pick one. I will, you know what, I'll just tell you today I'm making my beet tartare and I am, I'm not big on beetroot. I got, uh, well, no, I love beetroot now, but I got raised with the classic 
uh, tin beetroot and pineapple on an Aussie burger and it sent me running for the hills. I thought it was disgusting. But my beet tartare redeems the beetroot. It is like a beef tartare with capers and um, chives and all those beautiful flavours. But I put smoked aioli through the layers of it and I serve it with rocket and like toasted olive sourdough and I woke up today and I said I need that so that's just one of the recipes it's one of my favorites and it's favorite in so far that I'm making it for lunch (laughs) (laughs) oh that sounds amazing I can't wait to check the whole book out I've still got to go get a coffee but it just sounds absolutely unreal I know in the book too you do talk a little bit about the history of plant-based alternatives and I would absolutely love to hear a little bit more about that because I think it can be an area especially where we don't acknowledge the roots um, of a lot of these plant-based alternatives which have been kind of adopted by a kind of largely white vegan narrative so it's nice to hear about the background where those came from and you know acknowledge all of that. For sure. It's um, it's quite an interesting space because vegan food is so innovative. And so by that nature, we do borrow from as many different parts of the world and parts of the history that we can. And it is important to just, well, I think you're doing not only those cultures a disservice, but you're also doing yourself a massive disservice because if you're using this recipe that got perfected a thousand years ago and you're not even going to look up how they did it and what they might have learned back then then I mean what kind of ego do you need to have to think that you know better (laughs) (laughs) for example some things that look really familiar to us uh well obviously things like tofu and yuba so yuba is bean curd and it's formed when you cook the soy milk to make tofu it uh forms around 80 degrees celsius it's the skin on top and it's this wonder I use it for skin and I use it as the primary ingredient in a peaking duck but those come from um uh, well, they originated from China, but they've obviously disseminated through so many Asian cultures over the years. Uh, but something that's really cool is Buddhist cuisine from uh, about a thousand years back in about six thousand to 600 years back have so many mock meats. And so we have this idea that mock meat is this newfangled fad and it couldn't be further from the truth. The Peking duck in my book is directly inspired by a hundreds of years old Buddhist dish where they would make, it was called mock duck and they would use the yuba skin from the soy milk production and they would roll it up as many times as possible to create really dense um, skin layers and so we've celebrated that by having that recipe in the book but I didn't come up with that people have been doing that and then forgotten about it and then reappropriated it for a thousand years and then if you want to move um you know, into more contemporary history. I did this fabulous uh, segment with the History Listen on ABC, and we looked at the first vegetarian cookbook currently able to be found that was ever published in Australia. And so this was by Alice Jevons, and it came out, I think, around 1901 in Australia. And uh, it has a Hampstead cutlet with a macaroni bone. So even in Australia, 120 years ago, we were trying to do little bones. And obviously that only serves an aesthetic touch to show people that this is meant to be a meat substitute. So you can see from thousands to hundreds to just in our little baby country alone, this is no new concept. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mm, yeah. That is so fascinating. I'll have to go back and listen to that one. I know that um, I, I believe I heard you talking on a Facebook Live about how back in 1901, was it there were about, I think, 30 Australian vegetarian restaurants? It's around 20 right? to 30 dedicated vegetarian cafes. And I've got this wonderful, if, you've, uh, if you're a local Melbourneite, I found this um, like an ad from, I think it was 1890 for a vegetarian cafe just on Burke Street, just down the road from me. And it was advertising for how healthy and newfangled this cuisine was. But we had a thriving vegetarian, um, uh, well, a demand for vegetarianism over a hundred years ago in this country that we've either forgotten about or want to not talk about, but it's even in Australia, which tries to convince the world that it's such a meat-centric culture and and primarily when we started when we started when we uh came over when white people came over to Australia was advertised as a place that you could eat as much milk and meat as you want which you couldn't back in England and so even with that context to have such a celebration of vegetarianism really speaks to what a mainstay this movement is. Yeah, and what a culture it has in Australia. You know, this is not a new thing for us and definitely not, you know, a new thing for the people who were here before us. So it's really interesting to look at that history. Absolutely. And and when speaking about like sort of um colonial history, a big part of what drove um a lot of those plant-based uh meat commercial products the first ones all came from sanitarium so battle creek sanitarium which is in the u.s was one of the first that came across and set up uh the vegetarian cafes in australia so if you in australia know um nuttling and nut meat those little tins uh that you get in the free part of woolies those products have been available in Australia for 120 years and have largely stayed unchanged. So you can go travel back in time and eat like a vegetarian of 1901 uh, by getting some nuttoline from your woolies. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, when you think about that and, you know, where it's come from and where it's going. I mean, even looking at, you know, what you're doing, because it's fascinating to me to make meat yourself, like to make the plant-based meat alternatives yourself, I'm not sure how this sorcery works. I'm so interested in it. So I'm really looking forward to learning a bit more about it. But um, you did do before this book, you had the vegan junk food book, which came out in 2020 um, in September. So you're someone who definitely loves a bit of that kind of like tasty, unhealthy vegan cuisine. And I got to say, as like a vegan who exists now in this world and has access to the food that I do, I don't understand how anyone is a skinny vegan out there but I do feel <laughs> that there is like a bit of fat phobia in the vegan community. And I think it's a, a real issue in our community. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. It's, it's, it's an interesting fact that I, I've been uh, vegan for, I think, seven or eight years. And I, when I tell people that I lost 35 kilos on veganism, they they gasp and then I tell them that I gained those 35 kilos when I first went vegan and they don't want to hear about it and like 
veganism is not a diet at the end of the day, and it can be done in so many different ways. And I think it's important to separate separate veganism, the lifestyle from what might be one person's diet. So when I first went vegan, I, I downloaded Instagram initially just because I wanted to have a space where I was only seeing fellow vegans and food and inspiration. And boy, was it uninspiring because everyone was having smoothie bowls and bliss balls. And that looks nothing like the diet I currently maintain that I've ever had. It's not something I look I tried it. I, I, I ate nothing but raw tomatoes for lunch one day, then a pineapple juice for dinner. When I first went vegan, I thought that that's what you had to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like how, way to shoot ourselves in the foot because yeah. most of the world doesn't eat like that. And if we um, don't separate the fact that you could be healthy as a vegan, don't get me wrong, that's your prerogative, but that's your prerogative. And I don't care to hear about it. That's really up to you. I just want to hear about the great food that we could all choose to enjoy as well and I and I find as I post dress because I let it get a lot of comments about my weight or if I've lost weight or if I've gained weight and that's just a that's just a part of of uh well being a cook for one eating all day it's just a part of, of it but it's just interesting that um as soon as you say vegan people expect me to be educating them on something to do with nutritional they'd be like oh well you're fat I'm like never said I wasn't I'm a vegan like that's the only thing I've claimed to be today and so I think being public and loud about the fact that yeah I'm a bit chubby and boy did I have the best vegan pizza of my life last night (laughs) gets that gets the correct messaging out there that says oh hang on okay well if he's a vegan maybe then my friend's just really healthy and happens to be vegan but I don't have to do that if I went vegan myself Mm, Yeah, I think it's such a mistake for people to, you know, not sort of welcome people at all levels with all different kinds of diets and with all different lifestyles into the community. And I think it's so important that there is more space made for everyone in veganism. Um, I feel as though we see, uh, like, typically we see this representation of veganism as this kind of like heteronormative, you know, wellness guru, like white girl. And it just doesn't accurately represent a community that has a massive following, you know, in the kind of queer spaces. And there are so many people who, you know, people of color activists, like the mad black vegan uh, who's on Instagram. And there's just so many other people out there who you just don't see represented more widely in veganism. And I think that's such a mistake. It's true. It's very interesting to see as someone, I mean, I meet so many vegans and I feel like I've got, well, in my part of the world or my little space, I feel like I get a pretty good idea of what a vegan looks like. And it looks very different to who is representing us on on that mainstream scale. So, I mean, um, it's really interesting. Obviously, white veganism is something to be acknowledged and um to be held in front of mind as we um, work towards being intersectional and, and actually being a welcoming movement. But it's really interesting when people, you can see the disconnect between who we are and who's representing us. When people say veganism is such a white movement, I'm like, well, that's not what I found because I've met so many wonderful people of color who are vegan and whatnot. And I'm just like, oh, okay, no, it's not the fact that the people of color aren't in the movement. So they're not being represented. And it's interesting when you look at the top vegan chefs, they're usually male, which is very interesting for a predominantly female movement. As I've found, they're usually heterosexual and a bit of a sexy, uh, you might 
have sex with me one day if you follow me. I'm like, this isn't any of the vegans I know. They're not um, white hetero dudes talking about fitness. The vegans I know are bloody weirdos. And I love it because I feel so welcome with them. And so I do think that we maybe um, build up the wrong, well, no, not the wrong people at times, but we don't then put our energy into building up the right people. And I'd love to see more women rising to the top of this. I'd love to see more um, people of colour represented. And especially when we talk about borrowing from different cultures, as we do with our uh, cuisine, we should be inviting these cultures to have a say and, and share their stories too, as we collaborate now. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, you know, what we have to do. And I think that's the responsibility of everyone with a platform in this movement to lift up those around them so that we can see, you know, representation in this movement that actually represents the movement, you know, that is the other people out there. I had, I had a moment where I was like, oh, I really don't follow, a few years ago, I was like, I don't follow that many people of colour. I was like, oh, wow, maybe there's not that many. I was like, shut up, Zach. Like what a stupid perspective. And I, it took me time. It took, I asked people, I went and I went down the rabbit holes and I went, okay, maybe um, being quite Australian centric, I'm not seeing these people. I need to look overseas. I need, it, it is your responsibility to take that time. But you just speaking selfishly, you, like I said, you do yourself a disservice in the same way when you don't look at the history of your food has come from. If you're not trying to get all these different perspectives, you're going to have a very homogenous look of veganism, probably going, oh, wow, I could do it like that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I'm going to do, guys, um, for all my listeners out there, I'm going to drop five amazing, um, you know, people of color in the in the vegan movement, queer people in the vegan movement. Um, I'll see if I can find an NB uh, baby out there in the vegan movement. And we'll just, we'll drop some amazing people down there that you can go follow some influences. The Black Forage is one of my favorites. So we will drop them in there so that you guys can go and check them out and just expand your view on social media and expand, you know, what you're getting exposed to out there so that you can see it from different perspectives. Oh, absolutely. And especially if you think about the amount of soul food and beautiful like Southern food that you miss out of, you're not trying to find people who live that lifestyle. I think, um, oh, there's a great, um, was it set horny vegan, sexy vegan? There's a great black owned food truck in the US that I'm going to text you to put on your five because I want everyone to hear about it, but their name's escaping me right now. Brilliant. I will add that there with the list. We're also going to (laughs) a link to, um, all of your links we'll drop it to your link tree there zach and we will um drop in a link to go and purchase the vegan butcher from you directly because i heard a rumor that you do a little doodle in the books that you send out to your people is that true i do the first book i hand draw a burger you can ask for whatever kind of patty we've got beyond on special but i hand draw a burger new book i what do i hand draw i hand draw like veganized animal products so you do get an exclusive piece of art from me if you order from me direct amazing well guys you heard it here you definitely have to go and order direct through zach and you can find all of his links below and where can they pick up pick up the book if they don't want to order it directly from you uh if you're in australia most bookstores have it and if you're not in australia some bookstores have it and if you just google your local area i know like um like Barnes and Noble and um, Walmart and, and all the cool ones in the US have it um, for pre-order. So 
uh, if you jump on my website and don't want to order it from me, I do list where else you can get it from. So the the takeaway is go to my website anyway. (laughs) We will send them all there. You can find his website down in the uh, show notes for today's episode. And definitely go check out Zach's TikTok and Instagram because his reels are hilarious and over the top and just what you need in your life. (laughs) Thank you. I do enjoy aggressively dancing to camera and then thinking about how to connect it to vegan activism. (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed you're able to do it. I mean, you know, it's an impressive feat and it's always entertaining. So I'm a real fan. (laughs) Well, I say it came from writing this. Like, I, I, I never used to dance or anything on the internet, but it came from writing this bloody book where I had eight months where I couldn't share anything about what I was doing, and I only had ten minutes a day. And I was like, "We'll get some exercise. We'll put a joke on it." And now, um, I get more bookings to dance than I do to develop recipes. So that's an interesting little move for my career to take. <laughs> and that's the direction you're heading in now, dancing off all the calories from the book. So you know works out well (laughs) well it's I am I can confidently say I'm the number one Australian vegan butcher who dances on TikTok regarding animal activism number one on the planet (laughs) (laughs) oh my god and that is a title that everyone wants so I mean impressed just so impressed with that (laughs) I mean obviously there's hot competition I have had to rise to the top (laughs) Uh, it's been so great to have you on the episode today Zach thank you so much for joining us Thanks a million. It's been a treat. That was Zachary Bird, the most famous vegan butcher doing TikTok dances and promoting animal activism. So, yes, that was a great interview. So pleased that we had Zach on. You can find all of his links in the show notes below. You can go and check out his TikTok, his Instagram. Uh, You can find the link to order through Zach for the book, or you can just go to his website through the link below and have a look at where the book's available near you. It was so wonderful to have him on. You can also find the links to the five different BIPOC vegan creators that we found that we wanted to share with you guys. So we are sharing Pinky Cole from The Slutty Vegan. Uh, Their link's below. Alexis Nicole, The Black Forager. Their link's below. Esme, formerly The London Afro Vegan. You can find their link below. Jazz from Mad Black Vegan. Their link is below. And Rose from The Cheap Lazy Vegan. You can find their link below. So go and check out and follow those wonderful creators. They're putting some amazing stuff out there. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, you can rank us in the link below on um, Apple Podcasts or on iTunes. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to hear more of it, please do subscribe and head over and follow us on Instagram. If you'd like a shout out in the next show, you can hit me up there. Say hi. Let me know what kind of topic you would like covered or ask a question and I'll answer it and give you a shout out on the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we will catch you in a fortnight. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.